All right, I'll go ahead and pray and we'll get started. Lord, I just thank you for this wonderful opportunity we have again to tune into your word and enjoy uh, being fed, Lord. I pray that we would recognize this morning our own struggles with faith, even in light of such overwhelming circumstances, Lord, that you are in God and you are in control of all that we have happened in our life. And yet, Lord, we sometimes struggle with it, even when it's the most obvious. Lord, I just pray that uh, we would be a people that constantly turns to you and acknowledges you and praises you for uh, all you do. In your son's name, amen. So we're in Genesis 28 today. Um, and actually, we got through verse 9 last week, and we're going to just keep rolling with uh, the story of Jacob uh, that we really haven't gotten to one of the patriarchs who's, I guess, a, a hero of the faith. You could say Abraham, but I think I know Abraham well enough over this last couple months that um, he's, he's certainly human just like the rest of us, I think not until we get to Joseph do we get somebody who's uh, like super impressive. Um, we've kind of finished up Isaac and have been less than impressed with him. And now we're on to Jacob, who uh, I think his biggest contribution is he fathers 12 sons that become the fathers of the 12 tribes. But right now, that's not, uh, that's not the main thing going on in his life. Right now, uh, he's been, if you remember, uh, his mother has come up with a good good reason to send him away because his brother's going to kill him. Um, And so she talks Isaac into sending him back to uh, Abraham's relatives to find a wife uh, to carry things on. And and Isaac agrees and, and sends him off. So... He's traveling up to Haran, and that's where we, we come upon him. And we'll just start in verse 10 here and read through 22 to give kind of the backdrop of what's going on. So, then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went towards Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and had put it under his head and laid down in that place. He had a dream, and behold, the ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed." Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob arose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He called the name of the place Bethel. However, previously, the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, then I return to my father's house in safety. Then the Lord will be my God. The stone which I have set up as a pillar will be 
God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. And we'll get further than that today, but it's where we'll stop for right now. So we have him traveling to Haran and stops for the night north of Beersheba, where he's coming from. He's traveling up. If you remember, he's going up kind of to the area of Iraq, up north and east of Israel, of the Promised Land. But he's left his family as a fugitive, and it all relates to a birthright and a blessing that at this point in time, he really doesn't have any value in. Um, he can't, he's at a point where they aren't worth much to him at, uh, right now. He's going away from the land of promise and from his family and not really sure what the outcome is going to be in this. Um, he's sleeping with a pillow for his head. And so basically has uh, nothing as far as any wealth or material goods other than basically the clothes on his back and, and who he is. He is, uh, as far as relationships go, he's alienated his father and his brother through deception of them. And his mom is the one that has told him, you should go to a different country. And she's the one who has sent him on his way. So... In all of this, it had to be in his mind, at least a little bit, how in the world can God be in all this? How in the world is it that I have come to this place if I am to be this progenitor of these descendants that will someday fill this whole land and hold this land, and we will be a great nation? How is it that I've come to this position So if we look back at chapter 27, I just want to review the events there that have brought us to this point. So we have, after Jacob gets gets the birthright from his brother from a a bowl of of porridge, of lentil stew... um, we then have the, the deception of Isaac. So, we covered that a little bit last time. What's the, well, we covered it a lot last time. What's the, what happened with the deception of Isaac? Who was behind the deception? You guys have to talk this morning because it's a smaller group. And I'm less likely to get a bad question that I can't answer. <laughs> okay, so his mom was the one who was behind it. And his mom understood what about the two boys? What was the role of the two boys even before they were born? Who was it that was going to actually carry on the name? And who was it that was going to be the one in charge? The older or the younger? Man, you guys are quiet. Okay, so we have the younger who is, is the one who is going to actually be the one in charge. And, and Rebecca takes it into her own hands and works on getting, uh, getting Jacob put in that position where he's actually over his brother Esau and deceives his father. And ultimately receives the blessing that uh, his father was planning on giving to Esau. Now, we also remember that Esau... Or I'm sorry, Isaac, was Isaac aware of the position of the two sons and their roles? 
He was totally aware of what was promised about the two sons, and he was going against God as well in trying to get Esau the blessing. And I, I suspect that the two boys knew, knew what the, the promises about them were. And so we see and it ends up being that, that oops, it ends up being that Jacob receives the blessing, even though it's a blessing given in deception. And Esau comes in a minute too late and doesn't really receive a curse, but does receive a prediction of what it is he's going to have happen to him. And behind all of this is God having things worked out exactly the way he planned in spite of the people that are involved. In fact, it, it, even the results of this, as we've stated, that Esau wants to kill his brother, and that brings about sending Jacob away from the family to find a wife. So God not only uses the, the deception of the people towards one another to accomplish his goal. He's now going to use their reaction to that deception to continue to accomplish his goal. So understand that 27, as it flows to the beginning of 28 and to where we are at 2810, is all one continuous story. All too often, these stories get cut up in Sunday school class, and the flannel graph ends, and then a week later, the kids don't remember, and we don't remember those stories, and um, and we don't make the, the firm connection that should be there. All of this is connected in one long line. It's all one story. All of Genesis is. It starts with the sin in chapter 3. And with the sin in chapter 3, then there's a promise. And, and what's the promise in chapter 3? This one you have to get right because it's the, it's the answer that works 99% of the time in Sunday school class. What's the promise? Who's promised in chapter 3? It's the seed, right? So the seed is promised. Ultimately, this will be Jesus, but the seed is promised, and, and he's going to crush the serpent. He's going to overcome everything that was lost in the garden. And we even saw some of that imagery in the blessing of Jacob, that, that Jacob steals from his brother the imagery of the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, the abundance of grain and new wine, and even the, the promise, this messianic promise of all the nations bowing down um, to the descendants of Jacob. And then the tie to the Abrahamic covenant, cursed are those who curse you and blessed are those who bless you. And that's what Jacob has received. And you can see after that blessing for him to find himself in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the night, sleeping with his head on a stone, going to a land he's never been to before, exiled from the place where he has promised that his hopes and dreams are probably not working out the way he thought they would. And yet God is completely and totally in control of where they're at and where they're going. So we see in Genesis this the, the sin, the fall of man, we have a perfect creation, we have a sin and a fall of man and a separation with the promise of the seed of the woman coming forth. And then out of that we see nations formed and when the nations are formed, God calls Abraham to bring forth another nation that is his nation and to plant them on a land where he desires and to bring forth this seed, this promised 
descendant that will topple everything and put everything right. It's all working together towards one plan. It's all, it's all cohesive. These aren't just separate stories. And so that's, that's where we're at with Jacob. So Jacob lays down and he has this dream. And the dream is a uh, ladder or probably more appropriately a staircase with angels going up and down the ladder. Now what's an angel? An angel is really just a messenger. It's just a... Uh, the word itself is messenger, that we just keep the, the or kind of the original sound of the word and, and get the word angel. So we have messengers going up and down the staircase into heaven with God at the top of it. And certainly the idea here is that God is, uh, that heaven is opened up, that there is interaction between God and the earth and it's happening through these angels, and that heaven is actively involved in what's going on with Jacob. That God is working and has been working, and he is sovereign. He's not a deity that sets things in motion and then stood back to watch it all take place. It's more than just him making predictions about what he knows will happen in the future. It's more than God knew that Esau would sell his birthright and that Jacob and his mother would deceive Isaac to get the blessing. It's that God is actively in control of all these things. And that the lesson I think here that he's giving Jacob is saying, Jacob, I'm still in control. I'm still actively involved in everything that's going on with everyone's lives. And I'm going to bring my plan to pass. In fact, we see him, that's the reassurance he gives in verses 13, 14, and 15. Specifically, if we start with 14, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. So he's going to have all these children and in you all the descendants shall be, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. There's that, that global Blessing that comes from Jacob, comes from the line, comes from the seed. It's beyond even just his nation and his descendants. And then, more importantly, to the point of what's going on right now in his life, he says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. So if you're wondering, well, what's the latter all about? Why is, this in, why is this story in there? God tells him exactly why it's in here. It's because you're worried about whether or not, uh, you're worried about where you're going. You're worried about whether you're all alone. And you're worried about whether you'll ever come back here. But understand that I am with you. And I will be sure that you return to the land. And I'll be sure that all the promises that, ha- that came before will actually be fulfilled. But the first part of this is rather interesting. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. In the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. When did the Lion King come out? Does anyone know? How long ago was that? It's been a long time. Because they made a Broadway play out of it. And the Broadway plays come to Omaha. And that takes like a decade or two, right? Right? Elise is looking it up. 
Perfect. So in 94, we have the Lion King. And other than Akuna Matata, um, the, probably the most famous line from the Lion King um, comes from the Elton John song, The Circle of Life, right? And isn't that a wonderful way to teach your children that this is why everything works out in the end, because life's a great big circle. And yeah, I'm going to die someday and I'm going to go up and I'll be in heaven and you'll be down here and someday you'll come up there and it's like, well, wait, where does the circle keep going? Does Mufasa come back down or what? Or does everyone just keep going up? And actually the explanation Mufasa gives is that, you know what? Life isn't a circle. It's actually a lie. Um, but again, we, we tend to trivialize what this life is and I don't think it's a small trivialization to say that, that this life is circular. It is not a circle of life. It is a linear progression from beginning to end, and we're seeing that in Genesis from chapter 1 moving to chapter 3 where we have sin and then moving on to the plan of which God has to remove sin and set things right once again. And here we have this linear progression. I am the God of your father Abraham. Is Abraham alive at this point? Say no, no. So I'm a God of the dead. I'm still Abraham's God, which means Abraham still exists in some way, shape, or form. And the God of Isaac, who's alive, who was your father. And the land on which you lie, I will give it to you. There's the next generation. And to your descendants. God is making totally clear that life is linear and that it is moving forward. And Jacob, you need to understand that I have a plan and this is all just part of the plan. I am in control of everything going on. That's the image of this ladder as it comes down. Now, we see Jesus refer to the ladder himself as being the same situation. And what he's trying to do, I believe it's in John 1, he's trying to give reassurance that everything that's going to take place here going forward is part of the plan and God is in control. Now, that only makes sense for Jesus to say it if there are times in the ministry of Jesus and the lives of the disciples where it didn't look like things were going at all according to God's plan. And if we turn and we look, and that's exactly what we see in Christ is, and in his ministry, there are times when even John the Baptist himself says, are you really the one? Can you really be the Messiah? It's very reassuring when Jesus gives that that picture of he and his ministry, then it is to give reassurance. Just as in this situation, it is to give reassurance. Jesus is alluding back to the Old Testament so that they have a good understanding of the new. They have a good understanding of what is actually taking place. And for us, as we look at the New Testament, we have a good understanding of what is going on. This isn't the other way around where the New Testament helps us look back at Jacob's dream and figure it out. The reverse is actually true. And uh, one more reason I encourage you to read your Old Testament. Take whatever amount of, of material you can chew on throughout the week and maybe, maybe on the weekend read a chapter or read through the life of Jacob. And then for the rest of the week, just whenever your mind is idle and doesn't have something to deal with, just go back and start thinking about, well, I wonder what, where does that fit? How does that work? Why would he do that? Why would he say that? And start chewing on some of these things. We also call that meditating, and it's very helpful. 
God uses it to teach you. So we see that time is linear. God is making a very clear point here. It is not a circle of life. It's linear. That it started in this line with Abraham, then to Isaac, both the living and the dead represented, and then to you, Jacob, and then even after you, all the descendants, and then from them spreading out to the whole earth. From Jerusalem into Judea to the uttermost parts of the earth, this is going to take place. All those things are, are wrapped up in this blessing that he gives. It's, a, it's, it's not so much a blessing as it is he's telling him this is how it's going to be. God is with him. He's, he's not to feel alone. So God helps set the expectations of what is going to happen and what's going on in Jacob's life right now. Jacob has just been given a roadmap of this is what's happening. This is what the outcome is going to be. You know it all and understand that, that right now you're looking at some form of God. I have no idea what he saw up there when, when God is speaking from above. I suspect clouds, light, thunder, lightning would be a good throw those things in there because that's the picture that they had of God. That's the closest he would allow them to see him in the Old Testament. But something like that is going on. And he's got angels going up and down a staircase and he's just had this amazing promise made to him. And so Jacob then realizes that this is a really big deal in one sense because he gets up in the morning and he takes the stone that he had put his head on and sets it up as a pillar um, I, I think of the, what do they call those when you're hiking in Colorado and they're little stands of stone? Karens. So I'm, I'm thinking little stone because it's got to fit under your head. Sets it up there, pours a little oil on it and just to remember where this place is and it's going to become an important place of worship in the future. But, and it, it's alluded to in that. But we see that uh, Jacob is, makes a vow then after he sets up this stone and he says, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone, which I've set up as a pillar, will be God's house. And of all that I give, you give me, I will surely give you a tenth. Does anyone have a problem with any of that? Yes. It's the it's an if then statement. Isn't that a math thing? Okay. So it's an if then statement. Well, clearly, I just saw this amazing image of I could actually see in a dream, but I could see the spiritual world as it's actually playing out. So if it turns out this is right, and everything happens the way God said it would, then you know what? God will be my God and 10% of everything I get, I'll give to him. Now, it's difficult. I don't want to be too harsh on him because we also need to understand that there's a surety that he could be assuming here. Meaning Jacob completely has faith that this is what's going to take place and basically is saying, when this takes place, this will be my response. I don't think it's entirely in that, in that fashion because of the response he's going to have when he meets Rachel here. I think there's some, some doubt and some question. Yes? Yes. 
So yes, so he is acknowledging that God is, um, because he also associates it with the house of God being set up there. So we're seeing him as saying, this is a support of, when we set up the house of God, then that's, it's going to be a set up place of worship and a tenth of what we give will be tithed. So yes, that's an excellent point. So I think there's, I think to be fair, there's some let's wait and see mixed with when this happens in that if then, but it's still there and it's still hard to get past. Um, especially in light of what he just saw. It's, it's kind of an interesting circumstance. So let's go to uh, 29, and we'll read through 1 through 14. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. He looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. For from that well they watered the flocks. Now the stone of the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, they would then roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. And he said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And here is Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. And he said, behold, it is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered. And they rolled the stone out of the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. So when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embrace him and kissed him and brought him to his house Then he related to Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are bone, you are my bone and my flesh, and he stayed with him a month. So again, we brought up well, you may want to remove any pictures of again a Hallmark movie here, because it's not, not necessarily the picture that we're given. Um, it's going to end in an embrace with Laban. Just remember that. He kisses and embraces Laban at the end. So any kissing and embracing, make sure you have that in pop, proper perspective. So, so we have Jacob meeting Rachel here. It is really tempting to go through this passage and do something with three flocks, a stone being rolled away, and meeting a woman at Jacob's well. There's a lot we could grab onto and bring into this story. But again, I just encourage you as you read your Bibles, one of my goals here is to help you as you read your Bibles to do so in a manner that honors the text that's before you and understand this is given and could be fully understood by the people who received it at the time. This 
this is a narrative. This is explaining what took place and what God was doing. So the people would have read it and said, aha, I now understand. They wouldn't have needed things in the future to come back so that they can understand what God was working at here. Everything that's pointed at in the future is mentioned as future already in the text in the first 28 chapters. Now we're in chapter 29. So just be, on, be honest with the text and what lays before you. So we have this picture. Verses 1 through 3 give us a picture of what's going on. He's on his journey. He's come to the land. that uh, um, He's come to Haran. And he sees a well in the field. And there's a stone over the well. And I, my guess is the stone is big enough that one man can move it because one man's about to move it. And it would have protected the well, as we saw, probably fairly important because uh, people like to dig and fill in people's wells in the last few chapters. So you kind of get an understanding of well water being really important. And um, he saw that there's a well in the field. There's three flocks of sheep coming up to the well. And that's where they're all going to get their water. And there's a stone there. And then when all the flocks are gathered, they would roll away the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep. And then when they're done, they'll put the stone back over the the mouth of the well. And so that's the situation. There's nothing, nothing really more going on than they don't water the sheep until all the, the flocks are present, and then they water the sheep. And you can see how that would work to try and keep things equal among the people and make sure that everyone's getting the same advantages and, and the well's being protected. There's a lot of reasons why that might be going on. And so Jacob sparks up a conversation with the people in the land, and we get the feeling that Jacob knows and understands sheep, which would fit his kind of in a nomadic uh, tribe of people that have a whole bunch of, of livestock. Um, he has none with him, but he knows and understands livestock, and he and his father certainly have dug and and maintain their fair share of wells. So Jacob says to him, my brothers, where are you from? And they say, we are from Haran. He's like, great, that's where I'm going. Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, yes, we know him and everything's well with him. In fact, here's Rachel's, his daughter. Now what's interesting here is um, Jacob is being kind of typical man, it's like, yeah, Rachel's daughter, yeah, his daughter, whatever. Let me tell you how you should be taking care of your sheep, because you're not doing it right. Let me explain to you the way to do this. So, yeah, Rachel is there, but uh, Jacob's attention is on um, shepherding, actually. And he says to him, um, behold, it is high day. It's not time for watering the livestock. They should actually be out in the pastures by now. You should water them at the beginning of the day and water at the end of the day, and you pasture them during the day. Why haven't you not? Why have you not watered the sheep already? And they explained to him the situation, which we already had in verses one through three, that we can't until all the flocks are gathered and they roll the stone from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep, and then Rachel walks in and gets Jacob's attention. So Jacob sees Rachel. And the description of Rachel in verse 10 mentions the relationship between Laban and Rachel and Jacob and Rachel three times in regards to the sheep, 
in regards to Rachel herself, actually first, and then in regards to the sheep, and then again in regards to the sheep. That's why is that, why in the world would that bring about in Jacob an embrace of Rachel to the point where he cries out and weeps? Because that's what spurs that on. When you read that interaction, it's like all of a sudden he embraces it. It's like, I don't know that you're supposed to do that in that culture. I mean, she's probably there, maybe veiled, maybe not, because she's working sheep, not as important there. Uh, <clears throat> and not uncommon in that culture for a child of, especially not necessarily the oldest child, of somebody who may or may not have had wealth to be out shepherding the flock and taking care of the flock. It wasn't necessarily a position of lowliness as it is at the time when Christ's advent occurs where shepherds are kind of the low people and they are hired out. This is, this is normal for the, the children of the patriarchs and the children of those who have wealth to be out taking care of the sheep. But what, what, in, what have we, as far as a clue of what's going on here when Jacob kisses Rachel and lifts his voice and weeps. And I think it all goes to the, the verse before there when it describes who Rachel is. She's the daughter of Laban, Jacob's uncle. The sheep are Laban's, Jacob's uncle. And he's now going to water the flock of Laban, Jacob's uncle. And this is his daughter, and the whole point of the second half of chapter 28 and 29, well, really, the whole point of chapter 28 is we're sending Jacob to go and get his wife, get himself a wife in verse 6 of chapter 28. Jacob is concerned about why it is everything seems to have fallen apart and he's sleeping on a stone in the middle with a, with a stone for a pillow in the middle of the desert. And God says, hey, don't worry about it. I'm in control. Jacob voices some, some concern. And he's basically saying, okay, if you can pull this off, I'll believe. And then he meets Rachel. And I think two things happen here. One is that Jacob realizes that God's hand is, this, is in this. Because out of, out of, in the middle of the pastures where this well is, he meets Rachel who we find out is very beautiful and realizes this is the daughter of my uncle. And I think he realizes this is it. What God has promised is taking place. I am not lost. I am right where I'm supposed to be. And God is directing everything. Those angels going up and down the staircase are actually accomplishing things and they're moving things in the direction they're supposed to be. And I think that is why Jacob embraces Rachel and with, with, um, with a kiss. And even the next verse, I mean, this is sandwiched right in the middle of Jacob telling Rachel then that he is the relative of her father Laban, his mother's uncle, and that he is the son of Rebekah. And so she runs and tells her father. Now, she doesn't need any explanation of who in the world is Rebecca. Why wouldn't she? Don't you suppose she knows who Rebecca is? Think of, think of this story relating it back to the last time 
somebody left the land of Canaan to go and search for a wife. Not for himself. When we had the picture of Eliezer, where Eliezer shows up at a well and has this deal where, okay, God, if she's the one, she's going to not only give me water, she's going to water the camels. And then as soon as, as soon as I find the one, we're going back to the tent. It turns out it's the daughter of, of I did that wrong, the sister of Laban. We're going to go back and we're going to get her and we're going to bring her back. That story had to have been told countless number of times, especially the number of times Eliezer tells it just in, in Scripture alone. I'm pretty sure Rachel would have been fully aware of what took place. And now she herself, in, as, as people do, romanticizing the story that took place, I'm sure, of how her aunt went to be married to Isaac without ever seeing him, just finding, him at, finding his servant at the well and being carried off on ten camels and gone. She herself now finds herself in the midst of a similar situation. So she runs off and tells her father all of this and we're saved to the repeat of the story again, unlike we were when it was Eliezer. So Laban hears the news of Jacob, his sister's son. He had to be thinking the same thing. This has all happened before. And he runs to meet him and embraces him and kisses him and brought him to his house. Then Jacob relates to Laban all these things. What things would you suppose he's related to Laban? Well, if we look back, it can be anywhere from chapter 27 on, which I think it probably was, just because the nature of the culture, they really love to tell stories, and that's how they remember things, and that's how they keep track of things and pass things on. But at the very least, all these things goes to the beginning of chapter 29. But the real meat of what's expressed here and the emotion that's wrapped up in all this, I think there's probably mention of a ladder and angels and God himself in all that. I think all these things would fit that. And Laban says to him, Surely you are bone and you are my bone and you are my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Now acknowledgement that that this is the family group, this is where they come from, this is who they are, is given, which is very, very important because that's who that's who Jacob was sent back to see. And we're given this statement, he stayed with him a month. And that should make you think back to the story of Eliezer in finding Rebekah. How long did they stay when they came and got Rebekah? You guys remember? Overnight. So in finding a bride for Isaac, they stayed overnight and Laban tried to get them to stay longer. But no, in the hand of God, using the already some signs that Laban is uh, a difficult person, he gets him to stay a month. Probably would have been better to take his bride and go. But again, God's going to use this. And, and I think as we read in this next two chapters, there's like four wives and 12 sons and a daughter that's going to come out of this craziness. And it's absolutely crazy. Um, 
God's hand is in all of it. God's hand is directing the number of children that he's having. It's, it's going to match. The number of sons is going to match the number of sons Ishmael had. And it's going to produce the 12 tribes. And all this is being built up. Okay, so Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, you notice that's a big deal. Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what, will, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters, and the name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for the younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than to give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Now we can be in the Hallmark movie. Um, but what we see here is, is one of the more important things, and it's implied at that last statement of Laban, stay with me, is that there must have been some understanding between Jacob and Laban that Jacob knows, I, I'm not staying here. This isn't where I belong. I'm going back. And that would have been included in all these things that he tells him. Um, so we have that Laban understands that, okay, God's going to put him back in the land. And therefore, yet another woman from my household is going back to live with Abraham and his household. So we have Jacob coming to an agreement here that, okay, I'm going to work for you, and then I'm going to go. Because Laban says, okay, it's better that she go with you than I give her to another man. I, I like you, your family, this will work well. Better that she go with you, um, but for right now, stay with me. So Jacob serves him for seven years. I have to get back to my place in the notes. So, and, and again, implying that Jacob has every intention to return. And then Laban pulls a trick. So Jacob says to Laban, give me my wife, the, for the time is completed that I may go into her. Um, and it is interesting, because we have other statements in Scripture, when the days were completed, and things happen, or in the appointed time, or Christ himself looking forward, his face firmly set on the day. And here we have, give me my wife for my time is completed. It's done. I have accomplished what I needed to accomplish. I've been doing it unwaveringly because I love this woman and I want this woman for my wife. Seven years is just fine. That's how much I love her. I'm ready. Fulfill your end of the bargain. So Laban then gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. Now in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him and Jacob went into her. Laban also gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Laban or to his daughter Leah as a maid. Now, just really quick, understand again the context of what this is. This is in the Old Testament. Um, more importantly, this is given by Moses to the people of Israel. And you cannot read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy without being inundated by the fact that what tribe you're in is really important. It's, it's not a small thing. And what tribe you're in here 
is going to be determined by which of these children you are. And so Moses here is introducing the mother of some of these tribes and saying, okay, made Zilpah. Here's who came from Zilpah. And I didn't write it down. You guys can look and see in, in chapter 30. We're going to get to it. Um, and uh, I could probably look real quick. Anyway, I get distracted. We've got, we've got to keep going and I'll read something about mandrakes and I'll get all flustered. Okay, mandrakes are next time. Um, so Leah and Zilpah now, we've got where those tribes are from. So Laban gives her maid Zilpah and her daughter Leah, or to his daughter Leah as a maid. We, we need to understand something of Eastern culture to understand how this takes place. There's probably veils involved. There's probably drink and partying involved. But basically what we end up with is he awakes in the morning and behold, it was Leah, and he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served with you? Why then have you deceived me? And we see the deception of man is carrying out the will of God because from these two women, Zilpah and Leah, are going to come the majority of the children who go on to become the tribes of Israel. So, it came about in the morning that when it is Leah, yeah, it's a dirty trick. Yeah, it's the fact that man is using deception to carry about his own means, but God is using those means to accomplish his goals in the nation of Israel. So, verse 26, Laban says, Is it not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn? Didn't I talk to you about this when we were out at the well, water and sheep? I mentioned to you that you got to marry the first one first. What I've always thought was interesting is Jacob didn't reply, well, I would have worked a year for her, but there's no way they're both worth seven years. Um, But he's stuck. So Laban says, complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also for the service which you shall serve with me for another seven years. So he's having him work another seven years for Leah because he's completed the seven years for Rachel. Laban is basically saying, complete the week for this one and we'll give you the other one for the service which you shall serve me for another seven years. The implication here is, yeah, you've paid for Rachel, but you've got to marry Leah first. And oh, by the way, you owe me seven years for Leah. Jacob did so and completed her week, and he gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. And Laban also gave his maid Bilhah to the daughter of Rachel as her maid. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban another seven years. So Laban swaps the daughters The daughters and the maids are all introduced, and God is still moving forward with his plan. And the last thing to take note of here is this statement, he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban another seven years. The love 
of Rachel more than Leah becomes huge in the nation of Israel and what's about to take place for the remainder of Genesis, for the next 20 chapters. And why do you suppose that is? Does anyone know? Why is it that loving Rachel becomes really, really important when it comes to which children she has? No, who's her firstborn? Joseph. And what happens when Jacob has a son? It's his his 11th son when this happens. We're going to see this. But what happens when he has Joseph, the son? Why is Joseph his favorite? He's the son of Rachel, the one he actually really loves. Out of the other, the other three, yeah, whatever. Rachel has a son, and he's like, this is my boy. This is him. This is the one. And we're going to see this love of Rachel over Leah then influence his love of his son, and Jake, uh, Joseph, and it's going to cause a disaster. To a level where I don't know what family dynamics you have that are challenging. Um, But my brothers have never thrown me in a well and left me for dead and then sold me off to to slavery. They've wanted to. I have a couple instances where my oldest brother, I think, was ready to kill me. um, But knew it would be wrong and didn't. Um, But this is... This is laying the groundwork, not only for who all the boys are, but also why Joseph is in the position he's going to find himself in. Questions or concerns about today's text? Yes. So, yeah, so did Jacob serve seven, Mary Leah serve seven, Mary Rachel, or did he owe seven more years? Is that what you're saying? There's a yeah. fly up here. It almost sounds like you married both after the seven and then served seven What does your study Bible say? <laughs> what did MacArthur say? That's what I always assumed because of verse 28. But it says, um, well, the week, according to MacArthur, is the week of celebration for the wedding. Okay. Actually, a week week. And then, um, then Laban gave him his daughter. So Jacob went into Rachel and then served another seven years. Okay. So seven years, seven days, seven years. You know what I could do is say, so what does a week in Daniel mean? Yeah. <laughs> you open this can of worms. I just want you to now swim in it. Yeah, so that's how I always read it. But no, I'll, I'll defer to I'll defer to MacArthur. I'm fine with that. No problem. Feel free. Um, but yeah, dirty trick. Two wives, two maids. 
um, a real mess. So the, the, you're saying he's there for 14 years. Okay, I'll, I'll go with that. Yes, because they're going to have a few kids in the time when he's still there. So, other questions or concerns? Anything about last week we covered sovereignty of God at, at, at like, really deep. The sovereignty of God and the, the, the um, responsibility still of man and the, the free will of man. And what that means. Because that's not a tiny thing. And what it means when God hates Esau but loves Jacob. This would fit in in God loving Jacob. Him continuing to carry out his plan in Jacob would be the sign of his love. Um, Or be the reason why you could say that God loved Jacob. Look what he's doing for him. All right, that's good. I'm glad you guys all have a great handle on the sovereignty of God and the free will of man because I struggle with it. It's good to see you guys are doing well. I'll pray. Lord, I thank you so much again for the opportunity to delve into your text and just see the lives of real people uh, who really lived in a real land and dealt with real problems, Lord, and yet even... When we mess up, uh, your plan is marching forward and you're going to accomplish your goals and you're going to, while not cause people to sin, you are going to use their sin and the situations they put themselves in to accomplish all of your work, Lord, that you stand above everything and that uh, from the day you created this earth, Lord, and certainly from the day that uh, man fell, you've had a plan that you're working forward to. Lord, we thank you that we live on this side of the cross and that we know and understand the full uh, revelation of your Son and that seed that was promised, Lord, that we take advantage of being the the people um, who are all the nations of the earth who are blessed by him, Lord. And, and we stand in awe of that, that we ourselves are even referred to in uh, this text. I pray that we'd be encouraged by it that we would believe when we see your great works and that we would not put you to the test, but instead, Lord, would just uh, work on not being surprised when you carry about uh, your plan. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.